you for tuning in to the Diary of an Addict. Today we have a very special guest, uh, one of my best friends, one of my uh, people I look up to on this recovery journey, uh, Caleb McCoy. What's up, bro? Glad to be here, man. I'm thankful for the opportunity. Been a long time coming. I know we've been back and forth with trying to get this scheduled and figure out you know, when when the best time was with travel and just both of us being busy. But, man, I'm thankful to be on here sharing sharing my story, bro. I appreciate that. Uh, when you said all that, man, what came to mind was uh, a Rod Wave lyric. I'm trying to think of it right now. But uh, it's but the gist of it is it's a blessing to be hectic. You know what I mean? It's a blessing to have a hectic schedule. You know, so... I'm, I'm glad we were able to link up and finally get to get this conversation going, bro. Cause you know, uh, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason, but even further than that, good and bad, but even further than that, everything happens for a reason when it should, you know what I mean? Absolutely, man. Um, God's timing, bro. You know, we just got to trust that. Like, we were having that conversation before we, before you hit the record button, you know, we're both, uh, you know, struggling with right now in our own recovery and everything, man. I just got to remember, just got to keep doing the next right thing and trust God's time. Yeah. I always, uh, one thing that always, you were talking about cultivating joy, man. What One of the things that I, I use all the time, you know, sometimes, Sometimes for petty stuff, sometimes for, you know, like serious stuff. But, you know, the petty stuff's like, like back in July down here, you know, I'm out building a carport on the coast of Florida on the Gulf Coast, and it's 110 degrees humidity, making it feel like 115, you know. And I'm like, what am I doing? But the way that I cultivate joy in situations like that, whether they be like that or even serious, I'm like, you know, it could always be worse. And then that starts me on looking back. People say you don't shouldn't look back, but I do it quite often. Um, not in the sense of rem- reminiscing or romanticizing the past, but just you know, I think it was July seventh whenever this happened, and I thought back to you know two years ago, July seventh, what I was doing, and that day I wasn't doing crap. You know, I was coming out hopefully for fifteen minutes. I was locked up, and COVID was going on, so. Just being able to think that, you know, everything, things could be a lot worse. They have been a lot worse, and I've, I've came a long way, you know, so that, that helps me cultivate joy in moments, you know, throughout struggles, because I know that, I don't know about for everybody else. I, I, when I speak, I speak for myself, but I don't want to be that guy that speaks about himself in third person, so I don't say Jack Smith or I, I just say you, you know, so. Yeah. No, well, man. Go ahead, go ahead. I think that's really important, man, to keep that in perspective, you know, and and to take time to reflect. You know, I was having a similar conversation the other day. We went to Tennessee with our friends, and we sat down uh, at this diner and started to eat. And I can't remember what I ordered, but my order came out wrong. And I started complaining about it, but I, I was real quick. I, you know, I looked at Caitlin, and I was like, man, we could be getting – you know, trays in jail right yeah. now. You be eating a bologna sandwich. <laughs> I was going to, you know, God reminded me real quick, man. Hey, remember where you were at when I found 
you know? Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm glad we started off like this too, bro, because where I was going with that thought earlier is that sometimes when you see people thriving, you know, you might not, you might think to yourself, again, me, I used to think to myself, man, if I could have it like them, I'd be doing all right too. You know what I mean? But Surface appearances are rarely what they seem. We all struggle, even 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 me and Caleb. You know what I mean? We're Caleb's a lot further on his recovery journey than me, but you know it it's not it's not a bad thing to struggle. It, uh, it becomes bad though when we struggle and we don't acknowledge it, or we try to repress it, or we try to you know gaslight ourselves into thinking that we got it too good to be struggling like that. You know, so just just you being open and transparent, you know, and saying that we we do struggle, we are struggling, you know, like that, that's, I think that's good for, uh, not only the listeners, but you know, the, the target audience that not that I don't like dislike any listeners, but the people I really want to listen are the people that we really want to help. And that's the people that I think that'll take a lot from that, that to know that they're not the only ones struggling. We all struggle. Absolutely, man. Um, you know, I really believe as I'm starting to get a little older, get some experience and a little bit of wisdom, I really believe that there's really only two things in life that can really teach us, man. And I think that's just love and suffering, you know, and and that's really important to understand, like, especially for suffering, like, man, that's to be expected. You know, we're going to we're going to constantly come up against different obstacles and challenges and setbacks. You know, and we just got to keep a good mindset. You know, got to understand that. Um, I really believe that our suffering is sacred. You know, I just talked about this in a drug court graduation I spoke at in Buncombe County on Friday, but. Our, you know, our suffering being sacred and our pain being a teacher and a guide to the promised land, to something better, to more joy, to more gratitude, to more peace, you know, whether that's a self-inflicted suffering, like you and I both went through, whether that's, you know, a, a suffering that's inflicted on, on us by somebody else or some other circumstance, like always asking yourself and not being like, toxic optimism you know like oh you know just just pray through it just, like but understanding and really looking at whatever it is that you're going through and trying to understand well how can I frame this you know how can this turn into a positive and yeah that's what i'm going through right now you know like social media you know it's all it's a highlight i love it it's a great tool it's how i built my business it's how I share, it's how I connect with people. But, you know, I try to I try to share, you know, the good and the bad from time to time. And if you're in my circle, then you know I've got struggles and you know that I've I've fallen, man, and I've I've screwed up. And uh shoot, man, I'm I'm wearing the same thing everybody else is wearing flesh, you know, and um but all that to say, man, I really believe that our suffering is sacred. But we just gotta have the mindset. We gotta have. We gotta know how to channel it effectively. Yeah, 
I agree with that. A lot of times it can either set you off on one or two ways, you know, but I think the one way like we were talking about is, is the way with less work, you know, um, because you got to work through your suffering, not necessarily like work hard to get through it, but you know, you got to, what you were saying, you got to work through the processes of thinking about, you know, how this ain't going to last forever. But neither are good times, you know. Exactly. I'm glad you said it that way. We were just talking about that in church, you know, like, this isn't going to last forever. Like, you're going to get through this. Like, everybody that's listening to this podcast, whatever suffering, whatever challenge that you've been through when you thought it was the end of the world, you survived it or you wouldn't be listening today. You know, and I think it's really important to remember that. Like, we're going to get through this. It may suck. It may, you know, it may be super challenging. It's going to hurt. We're going to cry. We're going to shed some tears. Um, but we're going to get through it, and we got to we got to pull the lessons from it when we do. Yes, sir. That actually reminded me of a. I was locked up with this old man one time, and he was old, bro. Like. I'm thinking to myself, like, what is this dude doing in here, you know? But then I catch myself, like, here am I trying to judge somebody else. We're in the same place. But I was asking him, you know, I was like, how much time you got, old man? He said, they ain't seen this to me yet. They're trying to give me 20 years. And I was like, oh, my God. You know what I mean? I was like, how are you dealing with that? He's like, ah, it'll be all right. They can't keep me forever. And if they can't. <laughs> They said, and if they do, they damn sure, or they sure as hell can't eat me. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, hey, man, that's a that's a different mindset, you know, where one person sees the crisis, another person sees an opportunity, you know, and I want to be the type of person that sees an opportunity in, in that, in those struggles, in those challenges, and that suffering. Yes, sir. Um well, okay. Thank you for that. I, I always, I love the, what I love most about this podcast is, you know, that not only how it gives a platform for people to share their stories, to help others get through things that we ourselves have been through. And we know that it's fucking hell to get through it, you know, but it's the, my goal was to help one person. You know, if I can help one person, I'm cool with it. You know, uh, I don't feel like everything's for nothing. Um, and every time that one, at least one of the people is me because I get to have these conversations and then we start talking about stuff that not necessarily would be like typical of what I would normally ask somebody on here. And those are the, those are the golden moments for me. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's just most of the time that's coming straight from their heart. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Straight from their heart. So I appreciate that, bro. Um, well, Caleb, I know you. Uh, you want to tell the listeners who you are, where you're from, uh, how, how was your childhood? Yeah, man. Um, you know, I've been kicking around how I was going to explain everything, but so my name is Caleb McCoy II, and I'm from Cherokee, North Carolina. I grew up here in the Birdtown community, and my mom and dad is Caleb McCoy Sr., and Ruth McCoy. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to 
not demonize or paint my parents in a, in a bad light because, you know, we've had this conversation personally, just how you got to separate a lot of times just to have a better understanding. And so you don't have resentments with the people who raised you, but separate them, you know, the title of mom and dad and like who they are as a person. And, yeah. you know, my mom and dad, like, just came, my dad was born in 1947. So he was 39 years old when I was born. He's an OG, hardcore, you know, earned his money by the sweat of his brow. Hard, I mean, hard worker, a hustler. He was a hustler. If anybody locally is listening to this that's old enough to remember, my dad was, uh, that's all, I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, he was doing his thing. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> He was doing this thing, and he was making sure that we didn't live in poverty like he did, you know, and uh, which came with its own challenges because that caused me to grow up with a sense of entitlement. Um, my mom, damn, she's calling her out now. She, look, I talked her up, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> my mom is... Uh, Man, I love that woman. You know, my dad's gone, but uh, my mom's my best friend. I talk to her almost every day, and um, I'm glad that I can have that relationship with her. But understanding, and still, man, I still learn from my mom's story, you know, often. But she witnessed her, my grandma, her mom getting killed in front of her, getting murdered um, when she was nine years old. She was placed in um, children's home, bounced around from group homes. Um, my grandpa, her dad, ended up getting shot and killed when she was like 13 or 14. So she had a lot of trauma. Um, finally, my my nanny and papa, I'll call them Jim and Suzanne Hornbuckle. Uh, anybody that grew up in Cherokee know who Jim and Suzanne were. They uh, ran the children's home back in the day and just took in a lot of kids. Not not their own, but treating them like their like their own kids. And so my mom was one of those one of those kids. And uh, you know she grew up really tough, obviously seeing all the stuff that she's seen. But, but yeah, man, I, my mom and dad loved me and did the best that they could, you know, with what they've been given. Um, and I just can't express how much I, I'm. I'm I'm thankful and I love them, but uh, I guess I had I had some older siblings. Um, trying to figure out which direction I want to go with this story, but my my youngest sister Leanne, she was in the house with us, and then I had three older siblings from my dad's first first marriage, and that's um, Angela, Carrie, and Steve. And so they're all about anywhere from 16 to 18 years older than me. And Leanne was seven years older than me. So I was the baby of the family. And I acted like it, too. <laughs> I was full rotten, man. I got everything I wanted. Um, you know, I was constantly getting my sister in trouble. Just, you know, being the baby, being a brat. Always telling on her. Always snitching her out. Uh, but... <laughs> Caitlin's running her lips in the background here, calling me a snitch. 
Um, that made me think of dang uh, when we were locked up with Tim Smith. Tim Smith over here. Tim Tim Smith when he'd be like, "Don't be pointing at me. You ain't in court." Remember that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't be pointing. You ain't in court. <laughs> um, but yeah, man. So Leanne and I were. We were sick as thieves. I didn't have, I didn't have my other siblings really in my life growing up, and um, you know, got involved in sports at a young age. Uh, basketball starting out, and started playing football when I was a freshman, and started doing other stuff as well. Basketball, football, track was kind of my, my, my as my jam, and. Um, I watched my sister too, man, and I don't share a lot of this in my story, but I watched my sister very early on kind of struggle with with substances, you know, sneaking out of the house and like she she was a runaway from time to time and just re- really rebelling, you know, with my mom and dad. Watched uh, my mom and dad go through it, man. Um, you know, I watched them get into some really, really volatile domestic violence situations, you know, and that's kind of, kind of how it was back in the day. It's like, you know, your old, your old lady, like, I mean, they just throw down and they party on and like everybody was good the next day. And I, I, that was kind of the norm, you know, yeah. and I seen that and everybody would laugh about it and everybody joke around about it and make light of it. And it's, man, that's a, a bad thing for a kid to see you know it's a bad example for a kid to see but hell they didn't know any better you know it's 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 kind of how it was a lot in a lot of different situations on the res and so that's kind of the stuff that's the challenging stuff that i've seen like the partying the using drug um drug dealing going on um and I was, you know, trying to figure out who I was in that during that time period. Um, I watched mom and dad get separated. I watched them separate on different occasions. I remember them getting into a huge fight one time, man. And Leanne took us outside, took me outside. And we were living on old number four road at the time. And so we made paper airplanes. I'll never forget this, man. I, it's, it's so vivid. But it was like late at night. It had to be close to, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock, something like that. And I can hear mom and dad just screaming and fighting in the house. And Leanne, she's just like trying to get me, trying to get my attention, trying to focus on what we were doing. So we started throwing these paper airplanes, and we we're having this competition. Whose who airplane could go the feathers? And I remember my mom coming out of the house, storming out of the house. Because we had to get in the vehicle, she snatches me up, puts me in the van, and we go across the bridge right there at Jenkins. And first time I've ever, only time I've ever seen my mom smoke a cigarette. She fired up a cigarette, started smoking. Well, the next day, she loaded us up, and she was dating somebody at the time who didn't live here, but she loaded us up. And I kid you not, Jack, she moved us across the country. So we went from Cherokee to California <laughs> overnight. Like, didn't tell us anything, threw us in the van, and we start going west. 
And man, that's, I mean, you, you know, people at least just think about that, like how challenging, how tough that is as a kid to just being taken away from everything that you've ever known. And I don't know, I feel like that's, that caused a lot of trauma and I didn't understand that, you know, and I'm still trying to work through it. I'm still trying to understand what the hell happened. But um, when I was 11 years old, so a couple years after all that, mom and dad get back together, separate and get back together. You know, mom, I ended up moving to Tucson, Arizona. Like we went to California, stayed for a little while and then went to Tucson. Stayed for like two months. I was going to elementary school out there and it, it, it ends up getting shot up. And my dad was like, he's not staying out there. I'm coming to get him. So he comes and scoops me back up, brings me back home. Um, they end up getting back together. And I remember getting migraines at the time. It's like 11 years old. It's a couple of years after all this takes place. Living back in Cherokee and start getting migraines. And uh, mom takes me to the, to the doctor and they prescribe me a narcotic, Thedol. And I remember taking that, taking that narcotic, man. And it, it gave me what I was missing. It gave me, it helped me escape. You know, it helped me to be comfortable. It helped me to check out. You know, there's one thing that everybody, I, I would, we'd be willing to bet everybody that listens to this podcast, we all do something to check out. We all look for a fix. We all have something that we turn to, you know, whenever we're depressed or anxious. And for me, you know, it was like 11 years old, man, you know, got, got this, got this trauma and got this kid that's, you know, got these challenges and boom, you give it to him. And it was like, I was hooked instantly. And I remember my mom asking, like, it was a nasal spray, and it was getting gone quick. And so she started hiding it, and she hid it in her underwear drawer. And I, you know, that's, that's where you hide stuff back in the day. Like, like yeah. kids don't look at your underwear drawer, you know? Um, so I was getting it out of there and come to find out Leanne was doing it, too. Taking my state, I taking my nasal spray, man. And um, so, yeah, I I became addicted to that. It got to the point to where I was getting in the medicine cabinet and was taking um, taking volume out of the medicine cabinet. I was taking anything. I didn't know what anything was. I was just taking stuff because I knew what the state all had given me, and I wanted more of that, you know, and. So I got off on that path, man, and finally I just it just ran out, right? And I, I didn't have it to use anymore. So started to uh started sneaking around, drinking, you know, thirteen, fourteen years old, partying, stuff like that. And um I remember sixteen years old, junior in high school, on back of a football bus, we was on our way to play the Inca Jet, and one of my buddies pulls out a, a bag of masks. And he was like, "Hey, man, you know we're gonna we're gonna put this in our water bottles. It's gonna help help us play like Superman." Yeah, I didn't know he's you know what educated on any of that stuff. 
um, I was thinking like it's just like speed, you know, like all right, let's do it, like like yellow jackets you could buy at the gas station. I didn't know what this was going to be, and I remember taking it, took it, started partying after football games, you know, using masks. Um, did you play but, that Superman? But did man, I got to pick that game and ran it all the way back. <laughs> Only what I had all year, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure I didn't, oh yeah. man, it did. There again, man, it gave me it gave me that false escape, you know, it gave me that that bravado that I thought that I needed, and yeah. Um, so go through high school, um, skating by, you know, drug use is getting worse, partying all the time, just stayed up all night. After a football game, we had to take the SAT that Saturday morning. I took some some dope that night, stayed up all through that night, started to crash in the middle of my SAT, fell asleep while taking the SAT, so I bombed that. You know, and I'm just like, things are just unraveling. Things are spir- spiraling out of control. And barely graduate high school, um, I had the opportunity. Uh, I had a couple of scholarship offers. Uh, one to play at Mars Hill or to run track at Western. And I failed some classes in the spring semester. So, you know, what happened with those? Those, you know, I lost that opportunity. And um, so I get out of high school, no direction, no ambition. Um, have two kids, have two sons with a couple of different women, and I was not able to be a, a father, be a presence in their life because of my my addiction, you know. And I'm trying to hide it, and um, it just got bad, man. And I think I think the disappointment and the shame that was starting to, I think that was what's consuming me. And I was like, you know what, man, this is. I thought my life was going to be different, and coming to the realization, like. I'm at this low, and you got one or two choices. Like, you're going to do something about it, or you're just going to keep going deeper and deeper into that, into that chaos, into that destruction. And it's staying in that, although it's chaotic and everything, that's your comfort zone, you know? Yeah. And yeah. a lot of people can relate to that. Right? It's, it's what you grow accustomed to. And um, so. It's from you. Yeah. Change is tough, man. I don't. Uh, it, Regardless of if it's good change or not, it's it's tough for anybody. And um, I, didn't, I didn't have the the eyes to see what my life could be, you know. And so I just not not on my son's life. Um, a disappointment to my family. Uh, you know, I don't have any direction. You know, it's like the scripture: without a vision, my people perish. And that's what I was doing, man. I was perishing and. So I just continue to go down this path, man, and start. Let me uh, ask, let me ask okay. you something, Taylor. Uh, your story sounds a lot like mine. Uh, a lot of these stories, you know, differences aside, we didn't meet each other until we were both grown, but our stories are kind of similar in some senses. But for me, man, I used to, people were like, why do you like doing that stuff? Why do you like doing that stuff? You hit it nail on the head earlier, man. I was, I think, and I'm coming to process this, like, even still to this day, that, like, 
I was more addicted to being able to check out of the reality I have created for myself because I felt like I couldn't change it than I was to actually getting high. Yeah. The, just the numbness, just the ability to compartmentalize. Instantly. You know what yeah. I mean? Well, maybe not instantly, but that was the process. But once you got your drug and you got to somewhere that you could use in peace, it was instant. You know what I mean? For sure. For sure, man. It just numbs everything. And that's not what life's supposed to be about, man. It's, you know, we got to be present and for the moment. we got to be present for the things that are most important. And unfortunately, that, you know, the addiction, the, the mental health issues, the, the trauma, we want to escape from that instead of kind of leaning in and figuring out how to work through it, you know, and exactly what was going on with me. You know, that's what, you know, like you're saying, it's what's going on with you, what was going on with you during that time as well. But, um, yeah, man. So I, I, I remember, I guess it really, it really, took a turn for the worst whenever my dad was diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer and they gave him six months to live. Um, at that time, I was just snorting pills, you know? But with this new this new challenge and this new news and the weight of that, that didn't work anymore. You know, and I needed something more. I needed something even more powerful to help me to numb the pain. Because this is pain that I... I couldn't handle. I thought that I couldn't handle. And so I remember I remember my son at the time, he was about five, 2011. And uh, February 2011. And I got that news. And uh, the girl that I was dating at the time, she brought home some syringes. And I was like, you know what? I remember going into the bathroom and Caleb was knocking on the bathroom door and I was, I was sitting on the commode just staring at the syringe. You know, I'd already broke down the pill, pulled it up. I'm staring at it. Caleb starts knocking on the door. And uh, I remember putting a towel at the bottom of the door. I told him I'd be out in a minute. And I shot up for the first time. And it just took it to a whole new whole new level, you know. And again, shame. I think shame is a huge part of why shame keeps us in bondage. It's just a huge part of why it's so hard to change. And so that amount of shame that came over me because I always compared myself to other people. I was like, oh, man, as long as I'm just snorting pills and I'm not like that junkie over there, I'm shooting up. I'm good. I got this. I can handle this. You know, that's what I, that's the lie I was telling myself. And, and then here I am becoming the, the thing that I said that I was never going to become. And so I was like, you're here now. Like, I mean, there's, you know, like you might as well just keep going. And so that, you know, that's what happened, man. And ended up moving in with my dad and I was getting into his, <laughs> I was living upstairs, man, 
and he had he would hide his he would hide his pills. And I I would listen for him to get up in the morning. He'd be sick from his chemo. And this is a, this is the point I got, Jack. Like, thank pretty man. It's, it's embarrassing, but it is what it is. And I remember I'd listen for him to go to the bathroom. Like I said, a lot of times he'd be getting sick from his chemo, and I sneak in, barely open the door, and I crawl, like army crawl across across the bedroom floor, reach up in his pillowcase, get his pill, get his pills out, and steal a bunch of his pain medication. Or I'd wait till he'd leave. And he ended up getting a safe because he found out I was stealing his pills, man. And he he could have kicked me out. It was justified. You know, he could give me some tough love, which is probably what I needed. But he was like, he'd always just be so loving, man, and encouraging and be like, son, I, I love you. I want to see you get better. So I'd wait till he leaves, getting his, getting his safe, you know, get his checkbook, write checks, bank calls tells him what's going on. I started packing my stuff. My dad was like, no, you know, I don't want, I don't want you going anywhere. And he's like, you go anywhere. I want you to go and get help. And I didn't do that. You know, and it got to the point to where my mom had to move him out of the house. You know, they'd been separated for a long time. They actually got separated uh, after I graduated high school. They've been separated for a long time by this point. And she moved him back into the house with her and her husband at the time. And uh, just because I couldn't be trusted, you know, and she knew that if he was going to be taken care of, if dang sure wasn't going to be here with me. And that's something I still got to live with, man. Um, but yeah, I, I remember getting the call. I was uh, I was in the woods digging ginseng, trying to get trying to hit a lick, get me some give me some dope money. And my mom calls me and she's like, hey, you need to get to the hospital. Your dad's about to pass. And I remember sprinting out of the woods. I was up up, up on Cooper's Creek. Um, a lot of the people that listen to this, they're going to be like, where the heck? But, you know, people that know and know where we're at, like they know what I'm talking about. But um, I was up on yeah. Cooper's Creek, sprinting out of the mountains there. And um, I get up to the hospital and I lay beside his bed. I, I pull the chair over, stay the night with him. It got to the point, Jack, where we couldn't be trusted in his room by himself. Like, he had to be under, like, they'd come watch him all the time because they knew what we were doing with his medication and stuff. So I remember laying by his, uh, sitting by his bed in a chair and fell asleep. And he hadn't been moving, man. He was so weak at the time. And I fell asleep, and uh, I woke up the next morning and, looking around for my dad and I was like asking the nurses you know he wasn't in there when I woke up I said where's my dad at and they were like oh we had to move him to the hospice room um but like did you did you feel him uh did he wake you up last night I was like no I, I didn't think he could move or talk or anything where he's so weak and they're like well he hasn't been but he rolled over and put his arm around you and held you last night while you're in a chair and uh I remember going to that hospice room. You know, I was his baby, you know, it was his namesake. And this was, uh, man, I miss him. <laughs> um, 
I remember going to that hospice room and uh it was a couple of days before he passed and he, he he called me in there and he didn't want to talk to anybody else at the time and he said something to me that I will take to my grave. And it's what inspires me to this day. But he was like a very feeble, weak, he's hundred and thirty pounds of shell, the man that he once was. You know, barely recognizable. And uh, so I'm looking at him. And I've got sweat beads coming down my forehead, man. And all I can think about is, like, getting out of here and going going to get some dope. You know, getting me a pill, getting high. And he was like, son, you're going to come out of this. He's like, you're going to come out of this one day, and you're going to do some great things for our family and for this community and for the world. Talk about talk about a profound statement. You know, like, again, I didn't have the ears to hear, or the eyes to see just how true that was in that moment. And a couple of days later, I'm in the bathroom that's connected to this hospice room and I can hear his heart rate monitor beeping and beeping. And uh, it flatlines. And I got a needle in my arm. And I remember pulling that needle out, wiping the blood off my arm, putting my rig in my pocket, walking outside, man, and giving my dad a kiss on the forehead and calling my pill, man, saying, hey, I need you to meet me at the casino. My dad just died. And right back to it. You know, it was September 14th, 2014. And I wish that I could say that that was the moment that things turned around, but it wasn't, you know, and just right back to the, like a moth to the flame, you know, back to the chaos and the darkness. And um, it got to the point now where I was so consumed by that shame that I didn't want to be here anymore. I couldn't stand looking at the person staring back at me in the mirror, you know, and several times I tried to commit suicide by overdose. I just knew, man, I had enough in that rig to kill me. And uh, fortunately, God had different plans. And uh, in 2016, I remember being in the bathroom here at the house, and uh, I loaded this rig up with a bunch of heroin, a bunch of masks, and I was like, I remember being on my being on my knees fixing my my shot in the bathroom, and I look at it, man, it's just black, it's black, you know. Anybody that's ever ever used, like they know they know what I'm talking about. But I looked at it and I was like, man, it's probably gonna kill me. Like, yeah, it's all right. Be better off going anyways. I remember shooting up, and within a couple minutes, you know, start overdosing. There's a ton of people here. Everybody's jet. Everybody, you know, dips out. And uh, the girl that I was with at the time, she stayed and, and another guy. Um, and they threw me in a bathtub, you know, and started throwing cold water on me, throwing ice on me. And I would start breathing and I'd go back out again. Start breathing and go back out again. And it got finally, I, I hadn't been breathing for about two or three minutes when the ambulance got here. And, you know, we didn't have any Narcan, so they were just doing the best that they could. 
they drug me out of the bathroom, took me down into uh took me into the living room and started working on me, Narcan me, you know, no response. Um and the EMT calls the ER doctor and was like, you know, he's not we can't get him to respond and uh, Narcan's not working, and AR doctor's like, well, if you've got more Narcan, don't stop working on him. Like, you you keep doing what you can do. So, finally start coming, I finally come back. Run everybody off. Right? It's an instant withdrawal. You're pissed off. You're not high anymore. You feel like crap. <laughs> and I, everybody get the hell out of my house. I don't want y'all here. <laughs> what? I said, that's how it man. Everybody get the fuck out unless you got something for me right now. That's <laughs> it, man. <laughs> that's it. And uh, so that's like November of um, 16. And, you know, by this time, you know, I've racked up a bunch of charges and, you know, I've got a bunch of warrants on me. And that was one thing I was I was pretty good at was always – escaping and get on foot chases and, and uh high speed chases and vehicles and uh, I always seem to get away and uh trooper Aaron Ammons he always gives me a hard time about that. Every time I see him is like, you know, if Caleb starts running, don't even try to catch him, like he's gone. <laughs> so it was kind of the rat that was the wreck that I got. But um they finally Did caught you, me. Caleb, remember that? What's that? The gingerbread man. The can't catch me. That's right, man. <laughs> I'm all about the gingerbread man. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, that was me. Uh, the gingerbread man. But they finally caught the gingerbread man in <laughs> seventeen. Um, I don't mean to cut y'all. I got to say this though, but. Uh, on the very first blue collar comedy tour when Ron White's talking about giving them the alias Tater and he was like Tater Salad he was like you finally did it he caught the Tater <laughs> <laughs> yep yep that's me they did it they caught the gingerbread man hit me up bro hit me up I'm glad too um when they arrested me man that was God rescuing me and I remember getting locked up, you know, March 2017. Uh, it was absconding. It was just a, a absconding charge, and they put my body at 180,000. <laughs> yeah, we got we got people coming in there, you know, level three trafficking. They don't have, <laughs> they barely got a bond like that, but they were they were pretty pissed off about it. Um, so you know, and that's where that's where you and I got real close and. Spent some time together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a couple, about three weeks into that, that stay, and I don't remember if you remember it like this, but I mean, I was sitting downstairs, you know, we're in C-Pod in Swain County Detention Center, and I'm sitting downstairs, and, you know, I'm, I'm journaling some, and I'm cussing every other breath, and every other word in my journaling, and TD this, and this and that, and like, just... Just talking about bull crap, man. It don't even matter, you know. Couldn't wait to get back out, you know, rip and run again. And but for some reason, man, God just started to put something on my heart, and uh, it was, you know, back to my dad again. And 
So I, I write out something in my journal, and I'm like, God, if you're if you're real, you know, show me something. You know, show me that my dad's still with me. And uh, I remember walking upstairs to grab something to come back down, and lo and behold, Pastor Terry comes in, and he he reminded me of my dad so much, man, especially in that moment. You know, his flannel shirt, his pants, his belt, his watch. Like, it was just a striking resemblance. And, and it was what I needed to see in that moment, man. And he came in and just shared the, go- the simple gospel with me, man, that, that God loves me and I had, had a plan and purpose for my life. And it wasn't all the stuff that I was carrying wasn't mine to carry. And I needed to give it over to God. And he was going to use it, you know, to, to help other people. And I believe that, man. And it changed, it changed me. Um, and I was all about, I was all about Jesus, you know, still am. Um, but when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And that's exactly what I needed in that moment. And it, uh, it sent me on a different trajectory. And, and I, that's you and I's, uh, brotherhood kind of developed, you know, during that time. And if you remember, man, we, we built some camaraderie in there, you know, we were, we're talking about doing different things. We were spending, we're actually doing our time and not talking about a bunch of bull crap. And we're trying to get not only physically fit, but spiritually fit, you know, and preparing for what was to come whenever we hit the, hit the door, you know? And I remember when they moved me to Cherokee, you know, I've done five and a half months in Swain and they moved me to Cherokee and I, was, I didn't have anybody to work out with up there. Like nobody was doing the same thing. And I was like, man, I miss, I miss Jack and Steph all the guys down there, you know. Um, but yeah, man, God really just started doing work on my heart while I was while I was locked up, and you know that's kind of how it started for me, man, for sure. We did uh, have a lot of camaraderie in there, man. I remember we would go from playing cards all day to then doing one of the hard. Still to this day, even in the shape I'm in today, I. I I would do it, but I wouldn't want to. You know what I mean? The workout that we did, the 10 up, 10 down. Bro. (laughs) Yeah. But then after that, we would eat together. And then right before bedtime, man, me and you, we started asking. Remember we were doing that book, and everybody was like, what y'all doing down there? So then we started getting up and asking everybody, and everybody was engaged in doing the what my purpose is or what in the world is my purpose. What's that book called? What on earth am I here for? Yes. That was that was an awesome time, bro. I mean, as far as jail goes, it was just, I get what you're saying when you're saying about moving and stuff, because, I mean, that was a really, it wasn't the turning moment for me, but it was one of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you really look back at it, man, you could really see God moving, you know? Um, and... I hung on to that, man. I still do. Like that's, yeah. I get, I kind of get off on the, off on a different path sometimes, but bro, I'm, I am where I am today because because of my my relationship with with Jesus. Like, and I don't I don't talk about that as much as I used to, and I need to get back to that. But man, and <laughs> God found me in that jail cell, bro. Like. I wouldn't be where I'm at today if that if that hadn't happened, and um, so I you know kind of how I got started my recovery journey. And I remember going to when I was in Cherokee those two weeks. Uh, Lisa Anthony, who was the therapist at the jail, like 
she had to tell the jailer to tell me to stop trying to come see her. Like I was constantly trying to go and hang out and talk and talk about recovery, talk about things I was going to do. And I was just all in, man. And I knew that I had to be that way. You you have to be that way. You know, you got to change your, your people, places and playgrounds. You got to change your conversations. Like it, it has to be a, just a 180, you know, like, what, that's what repentance is. He's turning around, turning the other direction. And that's what, that's what I was doing. And I remember being in Cherokee and seeing the recovery rally because I was get I got out in August of 2017. And I remember seeing a, a, a flyer for the recovery rally. It's going to be in September. And I told some of the guys I was in, in Cherokee with, I was like, I want to speak at that. <laughs> and, uh, they're like, yeah, right. You know, if, you know, you'll be back right back in here. You, we'll see you back in here next week or two. And uh, you know, as well as I do, I got to make that come to. You know, I got to manifest that, man. I got to speak. God gave me that blessing to be able to share my story for the first time at that recovery rally. Oh, there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think I got out the day before that, or the day of. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you going there with me, man. I was just a a ball of nerves, you know, and which I still I still get that way when I speak, but um I can handle it a lot better now, but just fumbling over my words, stuttering and but being able to to share that, man, it's so important. You know, being able to people don't know you have a testimony if you don't testify, if you don't talk about it, if you don't share what you've been through, you know, and how you came out of it, because it is it is a roadmap for somebody else. And I think it's really important. And so I'm always honored to, to share a little bit of that story. But, you know, I've got a lot of people see um, social media and things I do now, like traveling and and running races and, and, and coaching and stuff. But, like, it, it really was, was born in from that Ironman 70.3 that I did in October of 2017. And, <laughs> yeah. oh, bro, i got to send you a picture. I seen that uh, Caitlin and I were at the courthouse in in Asheville the other day, like I was telling you. But there's a there was a gold bike sitting there. Oh, <laughs> gold. Gold. So, for, for those of you that don't know, Jack and I we were we were some biking fools when we got out. <laughs> but I, I yeah, told man. somebody they 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 did not believe me. They were like, "Yeah, man, ten miles the other day." And in my head, you know, I didn't want to say it out loud, but I was thinking to myself, man, that ain't shit. The first time I ever hopped on a bike with Caleb, we rode 56 miles. You remember that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, man, we, we went hard. We went hard for sure. Um, all in, bro, no break. And for me, that's what it took, you know, like, Shoot, I was running the bike in the recur to the SAT meetings at the at Anilaniski. Like, yeah, I rode with you, man. Remember that's <laughs> when they were they was like, that's when the infamous. Uh, if Caitlin's sitting there, she can attest to this. I think it was her. Like, she sent a picture of her on the bike. Oh, we found y'all's bikes, and then he was like, "Those are all my bikes." <laughs> <Be there>. <laughs> <laughs> We still say that, man. Those are all my bikes. <laughs> <laughs> Claiming my bike. Um, 
but yeah, man, that's that's how I started my not only my recovery journey, um, but you know my fitness journey as well, and, and completing that Ironman seventy point three, which is people that don't know, it's a one point two mile swim, a fifty six mile bike ride, and a thirteen point one mile run. And you just do that back to back to back. Um, but you know, I always anytime I go into a race, I'll, I'll just perspective, right? Like if this is the challenge, most challenging thing that I'm doing, like I'm doing, I'm, I'm living right. You know, cause yeah. where I was, where I was back in the day and the things that I were doing, that I was doing then, like that doesn't even compare to this race or this event doesn't even compare to how challenging that was. And so just like you said, man, you got to, I think it's really important to look in that rear view from time to time, just to remind yourself, man, to, See how far you've come. See how far God's brought you. Yeah. Um, you came where you used to be, where you're at, where you're headed. I think that a lot of people get fixated. I think it's really the comparison thing. Like we were talking about social media earlier. Um, comparison is a thief of joy. You know, my journey don't look like your journey. You might be further along in your journey than mine. You might have things that happened for you before me, but that doesn't mean that I need to give up or that I'm not moving. You know what I mean? And exactly. I think people, they feel like they're stagnant and they're not realizing that mm. every day that they are, especially this is for me, especially every day I'm up, I'm working, I'm not getting high, I am working one step to doing the things that I want to do and need to do that, I'm further along than I was yesterday, even if it don't feel like that. So that's that's what the importance of looking back for me really is, you know. Yeah, man, for sure. That's it, man. Just breaking it down and just sometimes, you know, sometimes it's one day at a time. Sometimes it's like, man, I just gotta get through this next minute. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Deep breath. Take a step. You know. Uh, I, I read a book, actually. Uh, it was a kid's book a while back. It was written by, uh, I don't know if his name's Satcher or Sacker. He writes Holes. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-mm. The book Holes, when they made a movie about it? I, I've heard of the movie. Oh, okay. Well, the, whole, the Holes is like an iconic children's book. You know, Stanley Yelnat, um But he wrote a sequel to it that I had never heard of. You know, and I was like, what? It was called Small Steps. It was uh, about one of the other kids who wasn't the main character in the original book and movie. But in the movie, they are at a juvenile camp, you know, and it's about this kid and how he's trying to navigate being back home after leaving that camp. Um, And he's talking about how his therapist told him, it's all about small steps. It's all about small steps. When you're trying to put your life back together, you're trying to reintegrate yourself back into society after being in a rehab or jail or institution, it's kind of like walking up a river against the current. You know, you just got to take a baby step at a time, little steps, little steps, little steps, because the water's pushing against you. These other factors are pushing against you. The consequences for your previous actions are pushing against you, you know, um, and when you try to take too big of a step, those currents or circumstances knock you down. So it's important to just take a little bit, little step at a time. Because even though you feel like you're not moving, you're making a lot more progress than if you try to jump forward. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great advice, man. That's what it's about. 
did your uh, fitness journey coincide with your recovery journey? What What's helped you go from where you were to where you're at now? Man, taking risks. Um, you know, and I, I mean, just to talk a little bit about that, um, running the trail of tears, you know, that kind of taking that big of a risk. I didn't going and applying for the RTR ride when I got out of jail in 2017, being denied that opportunity because of my felony background and realizing, okay, this is a, this is a roadblock. This is, you know, this is a challenge. How can I, how can I get around this obstacle? How can I get through it? And, you know, going to, to counsel and trying to get the ruling changed, trying to get the, trying to get the rule changed um, and not getting that support. I remember standing in front of everybody and I was like, well, y'all ain't going to let me ride the bike and I'll just run to Oklahoma. And before I didn't even plan on saying that, but when I did, I was like, I got to do it now. <laughs> yeah. so, um, what, uh, what's the ride you speak of for non-Cherokee listeners? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Glad you asked. So the RTR is stands for remember the removal and it retraces the northern route of the Trail of Tears, which starts at New Echota and ends at New Echota, Georgia, and ends at ends in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And so I wanted to make it unique and make it my own. So I went the Bend route, which is pretty much straight across. Like well, I started Fort Payne, Alabama. Um, I did I did start running from Cherokee towards Fort Payne, and then uh, pick a a, a, a drove on the Fort Payne and then started the journey there. So I actually left from Gadua here in, outside of Cherokee. But, um, yeah, man, like just taking that risk and like doing something that I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I didn't know if I was going to complete it. I didn't know what type of support that I was going to get. Um, but I felt like God put it on my heart to do, man. And thankfully I had, I had the support, I had the resources to to go out and accomplish that. And so May 14th, 2018, I started that journey from Gadua. Your grandpa came down, and God rest his soul, as a good man, um, your grandpa John came down and, and prayed over me. And, um, you know, like, throughout that journey, I just kept seeing God show up. And honestly, man, I got to thank your grandpa i gotta thank your mom in a lot of ways for that whole trip like maybe i wouldn't have had the eyes to see it while i was out there if your grandpa didn't pray over me and just asking god to just reveal things to me while i was out on out on the road um but i remember this girl reaching out because we started getting some regional news coverage like knoxville chattanooga um you know news 13 in Asheville, and uh this girl who'd seen the story somebody shared it on facebook she reaches out to me and she was like, Hey, uh, her name's Ambry. Still talk to her from time to time, but she's in Texas. And she said, I've seen your story and I have something to share with you. So I call her. I was running through Tennessee at the time. I give her a call and she's like, you going to think I'm crazy, but I want to share it with you anyway. So I was like, all right. And, uh, she said, I had, I had a dream last night and, you were running down the road and you got these big chains over, over like over across your, your back. And she said, every time that you take a step, these chain links are breaking off. And I said, all right. 
cool. Like, thanks for sharing. I really don't know what that means, but I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, at that time, around that time, my aunt, my aunt, Annie Cucumber, she, she passed away. So my mom comes back to bury my aunt, her sister, and it's just Caitlin and I out there. Caitlin's, the way that we've done this, for people wondering, is I, Caitlin would drive the truck, you know, with all the supplies in it. She'd go three, five, seven miles up the road, and I'd just run to the truck, you know, free up on water, nutrition, and keep going. And we just do that like, throughout the day. So Caitlin's waiting on me one day, and she she's she's out running, and she turns around. She knew I was going to be coming to the truck. And where she turns around at is a chain link. So we're like, oh, that's cool. You know, it's a coincidence. She keeps the chain link. We keep going. And a few days later, I'm running 49 miles in honor of my aunt. She's 49. She passed away. I want to run 49 miles for her. So we get to mile 47, like 1030 at night. And uh, got a couple more miles to go. We're getting some water, getting something to eat. And standing around the back of the truck, Caitlin just jumps back and starts screaming. And I was like, I thought she got snake bit or something. And she's like, oh, my God. And she gets her flashlight out. And there's a chain link right where we stopped the truck at the back of the truck. I was like, all right. All right, God. I see you. <laughs> and I, I knew something was something more to what was happening. And so we, you know, keep on, keep on going, get to Osage, Arkansas. I just record, I'm um, filming a recreation of that story uh, in the documentary, and we had to go back to that spot. But we're in Osage, Arkansas, and I remember running down the road. I got this pack on, you know, got my, my phone, playing music, listening to Conway Twitty. That's my job. You know, me and my dad used to sing that song together. And so I'm listening to this, this song, thinking about my dad. I'm crying. I look over, and there's a sign that says McCoy's Garage. And I was like, oh, man, that's cool. Like, as if one coincidence wasn't enough or one revelation like this wasn't enough. But when I stopped to take a picture of the sign, Jack, there's a chain link at my feet where I stopped to take the picture. Ooh, bro! I was like, man, it was it was powerful, and I knew that I was where I was supposed to be. And Confirm- confirmation, man, exactly. And so, uh, you know, we'd make it on to Oklahoma. Your mom helped set up a, a welcoming event um, in Tahlequah, and I had a ton of people come out, support me, cheer me on. Greg was out there. Uh, it was cool, man. And a lot of people that scoffed and laughed at me were cheering for me. A lot of there's a few of them that showed up to see me come into Tahlequah. And so I ran right at 800 miles in 40 days um, on that journey. And just seeing the way that God showed up, man, just gave me so much confidence and so much faith. And so that's, I take that into every situation that I go into or I try to try to remember that man like man I didn't we didn't overcome the things that we overcame to be mediocre or to 
just skate by in life. And I try to figure out how I can, I can be of service. I try to figure out how to inspire others, man, and help other people. Um, because I know that God's got a, a purpose, you know, for our lives. And, and that's what I'm trying to do, man, is tap into mine. And so that's kind of how, that's how my whole fitness journey really, really started, you know, and, and having that boldness and that faith to do other things, you know, stem from, from doing that. Yeah. Uh, I ask you, cause I, obviously I know a little bit, you know, I actually, I know a lot, but fitness is a staple of mine in my journey as well. Um, the discipline and consistency that it takes to not only maintain, but make myself better in the gym ends up spilling into all other aspects of my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I did. it would change people's lives. If, and it doesn't even have to be, they don't have to do CrossFit. They don't have to go run marathons. Like, doing some sort of movement routine, getting up in the morning and starting with a walk, you know, leaving your phone, um, getting some sunlight in your eyes, like just connecting man with, with God or whatever, whatever that you, you know, believe in. But it's so helpful, man. It's like, you know, move a muscle, change a thought. Whenever you're, you're, you're going through it, man, you're anxious and you're depressed, like move, (laughs) just move, just go for a walk. Go do a yoga routine. Do do something. I promise it's going to be life changing. Um, but you know now, I, that's one of the struggles that I had is I felt like my ambition with with fitness and and with running and stuff became an idol in my life. And you know God's working on me in that working on me in that area. And you know I really realize now that. Bro, when these muscles atrophy and our skin starts to sag and we're like, you know, we're 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 getting some age on us. What's the most important thing then? Well, I, I really believe it's our spirit, man, and and we got to strengthen that as much as we do the physical. And so that's you know that's some things I'm working on currently is strengthening that spirit, man. You know, that inner man. Yeah, holistically. Yeah. I, I agree with that, man. It's it's tough sometimes, man. It's uh once again I was telling you about the hard work I tend to shy away from. It's a lot easier for me to go to the gym and work on the physical, you know what I mean? Even yeah. if I do the hardest out I've ever done, it's still easier than working on the mental, working on the spiritual, you know, working on the emotional. But I agree with that wholeheartedly, man. Um Did you do classes or anything? Did you continue to go to... I know I started going to Alamiski with you, but did you continue and, like, finish off the Mac class or whatever? Because I just quit going. Yeah, I went to... I, I finished and got my certificate from SAT, you know, and which was, I think, 48 classes. I was super proud of that. And I think it's really important to, to accomplish, you know, to being able to accomplish and finish something like that, especially, you know, coming from where we came from, man, like... When's the last time we accomplished anything good? You know, when's the last time you committed to something and seen it through? And um, so that was, you know, that was a huge part of it, man, learning some tools from that and then going and getting my uh, 
peer support certification. Actually, I never went and got it through the state. I went and got it through VIA. So Caitlin would be like, well, you never were really a peer support. <laughs> um, I went through peer support training and I got my recovery coach certification and I started working at a homeless shelter in 2019. Um, man, I, you know, I, I really believe that you find work that serves others or you find, even if it's not work, it's not your job. You've got to create ways to serve others because we're not serving. We're not really recovering. And that's something that I've gotten away from recently too, like or here in the past. And so, man, God's just really shaking things up in my life, which is good. You know, it's uncomfortable. It's, you know, challenging, but I, I need that. And so, Working at the homeless shelter, man, was really, really beneficial for me to be able to give back and to love people, man, meet them where they're at, you know, and, and walk along beside them. And um, I worked there for three years, longest time I've ever held a job. You know, shout out Haywood uh, Pathways. Like, they get, they took a chance a chance on this failing, gave me an opportunity to build, build a resume and, and be a productive member of society and um can't thank them enough and uh so I, I left there in december of 21 um december 21 yeah and uh i had this idea like i started coaching some people on the side during that time and had some you know we had more and more people reaching out to me about coaching and I asked Caitlin, I said, what do you think about me quitting my job and doing coaching full-time? And she was like, you think you can help pay the bills? You know, go for it. And I was like, well, I don't really know, but we're going to find out. <laughs> so, um, again, man, just having that bold faith, you know, not being afraid to fail uh, was so important. Um, two, you know, I, I didn't get to share this, but like blooming where you're planted. Where you're at right now is where you're supposed to be. Make the most of it. Like, not not struggling with that process. Like, just like you know, we we're saying a few minutes ago, just trusting God, man, and having that faith. Like, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna work itself out. Um, for me, like, I started learning that when we was locked up. You know, I kept thinking I was going to get my bond reduced and I was going to get out, and that never happened. But during that time, like, I understood God was. God was trying to teach me something. God was trying to show me something. I need to work on something during that process that, you know, it's a blind spot that I needed to, to focus on. And so I was like, just stop struggling, beat my head against the wall, so to speak. And like, all right, I trust you, God. I'm giving it to you. I'm just going to keep doing what I need to do and bloom where I'm planted. And so I did that with my job. Um, you know, get, had the opportunity to go ahead and start coaching. Did that full time. And I'm proud to say that I've got a successful coaching business. I just hired two other coaches recently, coach anywhere from 15 to 30, 40 athletes at a time. Get to travel. Get, man, I get to live my dream, like, um, of helping people, of walking along beside them in their fitness journey. And, you know, uh, on top of that, like, Caitlin and I are opening up the men's recovery house. And so once that happens, I'll be stepping into the role of um, – you know, we haven't figured out what exactly my title is going to be, but like just helping the guys with their morning routines, with their, you know, spiritual disciplines. Um, so she said something mentor. She's hollering at me in the background. 
but yeah, man, that's kind of where I'm at today, brother. Man, that's awesome to see. I've been able to see it from the, you know front row seats, and I'm I'm proud of the growth you've made. And uh, I do want to ask you one thing, or just to have you touch on one thing. You say you're living your dream, and I don't doubt that. I know you are, but I've seen you work at it and not get discouraged. And that's just what I wanted to ask you about because. You you didn't start coaching and then the next day it'd be a fucking thriving business. You know what I mean? And I know a lot of people get discouraged, especially coming from places that we are and you're used to instant gratification when things don't happen immediately. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I guess what I was asking you is like, was it, was it tough in those times whenever, or did you just always have the vision in front of you like to not get discouraged in those times? Were there any times you were discouraged because it wasn't happening as quick as it should have or that you thought it should have? For sure, man. You know, we've had, Caitlin and I have had some some heated discussions about finances and about me possibly taking, a, you know, another job um, because I wasn't, I wasn't getting enough income coming in, you know. and But I, I, there again, you know, thinking about, thinking about struggles and, and setbacks and challenges. You know, I really believe an early setback can become the catalyst for the next chapter, a wonderful next chapter, you know, and and it's like, like the quote, don't give up where the miracle happens, you know, and understanding. And I think it's, you know, we're talking about the, the gifts that fitness has given us, like dedication, you know, seeing something through, showing up, just, you know, chop wood, carry water, where you just show up day after day after day. Um, I don't expect the result. You just do the work, you know, and delayed gratification. Like, the result that you want to see is going to be way down the road. Like, you're not going to see it for a long time. And that's that's another gift that, that this whole journey has given me. But, man, discouragement, you know, getting angry, getting like, I mean, that's all part of it, you know, and uh, just just continuing to trust that process and doing the things like that I need to do to succeed. Obviously, I just I just joined a um, a mentorship program um, for my coaching business, like putting some things in place that's going to help me succeed, you know, getting some mentors, getting some getting some coaches to help me along the way, you know, when those tough times do come and. Honestly, having a freaking saint for a wife, <laughs> that helps too, bro. I got one of you know as well as I do how amazing Caitlin is. She's she's so cool, man. She's so compassionate. She's she's a badass in her own right. <laughs> so um, just having her support, man, and you know, um, overall we got a really good marriage. You know, we've had some. You know as well as I do, man. We've we've had some some stuff go sideways on us, but all in all, man, we got an incredible marriage and relationship, and I'm super thankful for her and her support. Um, but yeah, man, just trying to check those boxes of uh, you know faith and and family and, and friends and work that serves others. I think that if we do those things, like we're going to be good. We're going to be good. 
Yeah, those are those are things that fill your cup up, at least for me. Um I had a podcast I had a guest on a podcast earlier this year and uh her name's Cece. She's the lead mental health therapist for the Kendra County School District down here in Florida and we're talking about the cup. A lot of people they're walking around with their cup full but of bad things. Uh maybe not necessarily bad but negative. They are they're walking around with resentments, words that they didn't say, things that they need to say, things that they need to do. And then it can be something where, like, you see these people just pop off for no reason. You know, maybe their Starbucks drink order got wrong and they, like, go berserk. But it's not that moment that did it. It was everything that led before it, and that just made the cup overflow. Well... What you're saying about serving others, and I've I've done this with y'all, and uh, we're about to do it again this weekend. But um, yep, that's that stuff like bro, like you cannot do that and not walk away happy, smiling. You know what I mean? Like absolutely not, man. <laughs> yeah, it definitely it does more for you than it does the person that you're serving, and that's I think that's the way they designed it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like overcoming overcoming that anxiety or overcoming the depression or, you know, any any plethora of different mental challenges, mental health challenges that we face, like man, a lot of that could be taken a lot of that can be alleviated through through serving others. Yeah. Uh I man, I agree one hundred percent. Um I feel like I used to be, after she said that, it kind of made me think, you know, and I got so focused and fixated on trying to empty my cup of these things, you know. But then I realized that, you know, just by doing a couple of service acts, just by, you know, we had extra food from, like, we shop at BJ's because we got a lot of kids and stuff. And the extra chips that nobody likes in the 50-count box, you know, like, they were just piling up, piling up. I think it was, like, something, I don't know, something nobody likes. Corn chips or something, you know, the last pick <laughs> that, but we started making these bags and just giving them to the people that we see who's struggling, who might need food, you know, uh, with like juice and chips and, uh, I think a ravioli, not the can, but the little like cups they come with. And I mean, that stuff makes you feel better than anything, anything like it's almost like a high in its own nature. You know what I mean? Uh, it is. It is, man. That's, I'm glad you put it that way because that's exactly what it does. You know, it's dopamine. It's that's what that's what uh, you know we're chasing. That we chase cheap dopamine all the time. You know, the likes on Instagram, emails, the you know whatever it is um, you're looking at on your phone. But I think real satisfaction comes through doing something like that. That's going to take more effort. You know. Yeah, especially when you just, uh, I don't know, it's more fulfilling for me, too, whenever I got some skin in the game, you know what I mean? It's one thing, like, whenever, when we made these bags, we bought the food, you know, I'm not saying that that's the reason we bought it, but it makes you feel better when you, you got something in it, you're actually doing something, you know what I mean? Uh, at <laughs> least for me. Yeah. May as well. Just the just the joy that you see in other people's faces. The joy that you see in their face is almost like a reflection of the joy that you're feeling for yourself. 
And there's not many things that can do that besides, you know, like your kids and stuff, like those big moments in life, you know. But this, that's the good stuff, the dopamine. That's the good stuff right there coming from helping serve others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it works, man. It takes effort to do that. Yeah. Time also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, man. I got a newfound respect for you, Caleb. Uh, I, I've always loved you like a brother, but some of the stuff I, I didn't even know, probably like whenever we did my story, you know, there's probably some stuff that I told you that you had no idea, you know, and there's been a couple of those moments to, today with you, and I just want to say thank you. Um, also, though, before I get off track, if you can go back and talk to the Caleb that in 2000... Let's say 13. Um, what would you say to him? Or do you think he would listen? Well, number one, he wouldn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just preface the, this uh, response with that. Um, he wouldn't listen. But uh, that still shouldn't deter us from speaking life over somebody. I would say... Okay. I think my dad put it perfectly, man. And you just, um, you're going to come out of this, you know, and, and, but you got to have the eyes to see. You got to have the ears to hear. You got to be looking for it. And if you do, you know, what you need will be given to you. And it's on yours to, to do something with it, you know. Um, yeah, and there's so much I would say. I think people need to also remember that until the pain of staying the same, until that becomes greater than the fear of change, it's not going to happen. And so, unfortunately, we have to, a lot of times we have to go through that suffering, you know? I had to, it makes me think of the the, the, the Psalm David, uh, he talks about, it was good for me to be afflicted. Um, I, need, I needed to go through that, unfortunately. I needed to go through that suffering and that disappointment and experience that shame for me to come out the other side with a deeper respect of of who God is, first and foremost, but have a deeper understanding of what true gratitude and joy and purpose is. So I don't know if that 2013 version, Caleb, would be, he would hear any of that, but I'd say some things like that to him. That's uh, that's good. I like how you said that it just shouldn't matter if anybody listens or not for us to speak life over them. You know what I mean? Sometimes, like if I would have gave myself advice, uh, I think that even if I would have listened to me, I don't even know if I understood what I was saying. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because of that I was looking at the world through. Um, if if there's a listener out there today who's still struggling in active addiction, would your advice to them be the same as to the younger version of yourself? Or would you say something else? I would definitely say something else. Um, I mean, just me knowing... 
my my story, my circumstance, you know. Um, obviously, that would change. But somebody else that's listening that might be struggling. I like, I'm the type of guy, Jack, as well, you know, as well as I do that I think we, we have too many surface level conversations and questions. So I like to ask deep questions that really get you thinking. Yeah. And my question, hey, baby, Caitlin's in here interrupting me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was in a therapy appointment with my son today and I almost asked him this question because he is, he's got some mental health struggles he's, he's facing right now. And, you know, we're, we're just praying that he doesn't go down that same path that I was on. But, um, what, why are you alive and for what are you willing to die? I feel like asking that type of question really gets people thinking. Why are you alive or why are you willing to die? That's a tough one. And for me, I would answer that today. Why am I alive? To break generational curses and traumas in my family and community to love and honor God and be the man that he created me to be in relationships, you know, and making change in the world, being a warrior. Um, what, for what am I willing to die? My faith, my family, um, you know, those are some things I'm willing to die for, but I can answer that now. Um, and I can honest say with complete honesty that I'm doing those things most of the time. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I fall short. Sometimes I don't meet, I don't hit the mark. But those are some things I can answer honestly. So you're struggling. Ask yourself, why am I alive? What am What am I willing to die? I want to add one little thing back before we wrap up that that uh, overdose in 2016 and the EMT worker. Caitlin and I started dating. I went to go pick her up, sitting down and talking to her and her mom. She's living with her mom at the time. Started telling her mom that story about me overdosing and an EMT worker working on me and saving my life. Her mom started crying, broke down, and she looks at me and Tears welling up in her eyes, and she said, you know who saved your life? I said, no. She said, that was me. Oof. So, yeah, man. God's real. (laughs) Um, He's got his hand on us. Uh, We just got to be looking for it. Yeah. I struggle with that every day myself sometimes. 
um, I don't want to say every day, but a lot, I guess I should say. Of, <clears throat> uh, his ways are not always, you know, and he does have a plan for each and every one of us, but it's not for us to know the details of said plan. That's where trust and faith comes in. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that's where I struggle with that, but I, I, that, I, I appreciate you saying that, brother. Um, we also, if we got listeners out there who, uh, they, they don't necessarily struggle with addiction themselves or substance abuse, but they, they listen because they have loved ones, family members, or friends that struggle, and they're just trying to mm-hmm. listen to find out any way that they can help and support and be there for that person. Do uh, you have any advice for those people? Yeah, I would say to the family member or friend that that's listening, to understand the importance of your role, um, you might be the only person that speaks life over them or loves them, you know, in the midst of what they're going through. And so you have a really, really important role. You are an advocate, advocate for them. And don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of how important that is because we all need people to love us. Like I said, man, at the beginning of this conversation, I really believe that we're taught by two things, love and suffering. And if you're the only one that's loving them in that moment, that's big. That's huge. Keep doing keep doing what you're doing. I agree. I appreciate that, man. I, even if you've told your story a thousand times, I know, like you just said, I'm glad you said it, it's still nervous. It's still nerve-wracking. It still causes anxiety and stress just to an extent. But people need to hear the story, you know? Everyone's, you know I mean? You had a conversation about this about a week ago. Someone somewhere needs to hear everybody's story. There's somebody out there who has who needs to listen to your story. There's somebody who needs to listen to my story. There's somebody who needs to listen to this person's story. There's somebody who needs to listen to all three and take a, take away a little bit, you know what I mean, from each. So mm-hmm. appreciate you coming on here and showing your skeletons off to the world, bro. Um, that was one of the main mantras I, I thought. One of these, I've seen a quote that made me even want to start this in the first place, which says, People with wounds listen to people with scars. So I appreciate you showing off scars, brother. I know it's not easy. And man, it's, it's, I've learned a lot and I know that someone else is going to get something out of this too. So I appreciate that, bro. Absolutely, man. It makes, you know, like I said, it's, uh, it's a great opportunity. I appreciate it. I love you, man. I love what you're doing. I support what you're doing. Everybody that's been on here previously, you know, good on you. Congratulations. Keep doing it. Keep sharing your light. Um, yeah, man, we're all wounded healers. You know, we all, we all got scars. We all got, all got struggles. We all make mistakes and, um, you know, doing, sharing those things. It, it gives people permission to, to be human, to be vulnerable and to heal. So I'm thankful for the opportunity, brother. I love you. I love you too, bro. 